Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 5 again. Judges chapter 5 was the song of Deborah about Jael's destruction of Sisera and Israel's destruction under her and Barak's leadership of the Canaanites. Judges 5. My purpose for preaching to you the attributes of God and my purpose this day for preaching to you about the humor of God is that you might have a relationship with God like Abraham. The Bible tells us about Abraham that he was the friend of God. People that are friends enjoy things together. People that are friends share with each other things that cause joy and happiness and gladness. They have a sense of humor with each other. They know each other. They have a level of confidence in each other that goes beyond a judge and a criminal. Our relationship to God is not that of a criminal with a judge. It is an acquitted, cleared, justified, innocent man with the righteousness of Christ and an adopted son of God. And we want to remember that. That is our relationship with God. He is our Father, and He is sharing His creation with us every day. The world sees meerkats. They see sloths. They see sunshine and rain. They see the moon and stars at night, but they do not give God the glory. Those things will turn to be further condemnation in their lives. We want to rejoice in every one of them. We want to exclaim about the greatness of great things, the beauty of beautiful things, the humor of funny things, and all of it directed back to the glory of God. I am not seeking to direct our worship and our praise anywhere else but to Him. I want you to be like Abraham. Abraham was called, in the Bible, the friend of God. And yet, when Abraham drew a knife to slay his son Isaac on the altar on Mount Moriah, the angel of the Lord cried from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not slay your son. Now I know that thou fearest me. The fear of God was not shown by sitting in a black robe with candles burning in a dark room. The fear of the Lord was willingness to give up even his only begotten son Isaac because the Lord asked him to. So there, there was proper fear of the Lord, but he was still the friend of God. Abraham knew if God does not stop me and I bring the knife down, God my friend who promised me this lad will be my seed forever and his descendants through Christ, will raise him from the dead. I want you to think about how the friendship affected everything Abraham knew about God. When Abraham's nephew Lot was taken captive by four kings from Mesopotamia, Abraham did not doubt his ability to get everything back by taking his 318 trained servants because he knew God was his friend and would be with him. When he got back, having recovered everything, and the king of Sodom wanted to pay him very handsomely, he denied the gift. He didn't need it because God, his friend, would continue to make him rich without the help of the king of Sodom. And Abraham, being a friend of God, did not want any other means in his riches but God's blessing. Remember how he worded it? When Abraham told him, 
when God told Abraham, please forgive me, when God told Abraham, I am going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, what gave Abraham the leverage, the confidence, the faith, the boldness to reason with him in prayer and ask him, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Because he was the friend of God. If there are 50 righteous souls, I'll spare it. Well, since I've opened my mouth to speak to my friend, the Most High God, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? What gives a man that kind of confidence? Abraham feared God. Abraham is an example of faith. Abraham is an example of fear. Abraham is an example of justification by faith. And Abraham is the friend of God. He knew the whole package. And I want all of you to know the whole package so that you will walk and talk and pray and live as confidently, as faithfully as Abraham did. That's why I'm on this subject. And I'm not done. When we looked at the song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5, there are many that would say this is incredibly cruel that Deborah, a woman, would be mocking another woman, the mother of Sisera, who is never going to see her boy again. And yet I want to remind you, this is an inspired song. Deborah didn't apologize that Sisera's mother was so stupid as to believe in the gods of the Canaanites and to think that her son was coming back. Deborah simply mocked her for already imagining herself in her new clothes, her needlework done on both sides, as Deborah mocked her in the song. And that song would be a, was not a funeral dirge. They did, this was not a minor sung to some organ that you hear played at a funeral home by those who cannot celebrate the death of the righteous that is precious in the sight of the Lord. This was a song of rejoicing. This was a song similar to the song of Moses where Miriam took up a tambourine and danced. Those are celebratory songs. Those are songs full of joy and lightness, happiness and thanksgiving, gladness and cheer. And we want to live that way with the Lord. There is a balance that we want, and I am trying to preach that balance. I will preach the hatred of God, and I did last Sunday. I will preach the terribleness of God, and I did a couple of Sundays ago. But I will preach His goodness, and I will preach His love, and I will preach His humor. And when we get to His relational attributes, they'll be even more precious than these. Because the relationship He has with His children is special, peculiar, wonderful. And it's coming, the Lord helping us. I want us to hold to Scripture. I don't care if the whole world thinks we're nuts, I'm nuts. I, if I can't find a theologian that agrees, it doesn't matter. It's what does the Bible say? How does the Bible describe the saints of God? And this is an inspired woman that God raised up to deliver Israel at this particular time from their enemies. And this is how she mocked the Canaanites and the mother of Sisera. She didn't feel sorry for Sisera. She wanted to celebrate jail. And for anyone that knows any Catholics, blessed art thou among women is what is said of Mary by the angel Gabriel 
in the Gospel of Luke. And I've made this point before. Catholics just don't know their Bibles very well. Blessed art thou among women. Jael was blessed above women. And it said that twice in the song by Deborah about Jail and Sisera. How can a woman get excited about taking an 18-inch tent stake and driving it through a man's head and then cutting his head off? Because that was an enemy of the Lord. That was an enemy of the Lord's kingdom, the, the Lord's church, and the Lord's people. That's how a woman did it. And may the women of our church and the girls of our church understand the full balance of knowing God in all of His attributes. Oh, what a relationship Abraham had with the Lord. You know, Abraham wouldn't take anything from the king of Sodom, but what did he do with the king of Salem? He gave him 10%. But wouldn't he get poor giving away 10% when there wasn't a commandment to tithe yet? Wouldn't he get poor? Are you kidding? Because Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God. The priest of his friend. We're going to have reverent services in this church. We're going to dress for it. We're going to prepare for it. We're going to pray for it. We're going to conduct the services in a reverent manner. We're going to worship God reverently with fear that's acceptable in His sight according to Hebrews chapter 12. But we're going to enjoy God as well. And we want to enjoy Him. And if you're not enjoying Him, you are distorted and you are in a ditch and your worship does not please God. By you thinking that you going into a ditch of extra sobriety beyond what the Bible describes, that you're worshiping God better, that is a false lie. You are distorting the God of heaven. He is my Father, and He laughs, and He loves me to laugh. And He made Sarah to laugh, and He's made me to laugh many times, and I look forward to Him making me to laugh many times in the future. Because I believe He's going to have things to show us in heaven that we have never seen before. If he's able to amuse us here in a world under under the bondage of corruption, what's the universe going to be like without that? I look forward to it. Thank you, Lord, for such hope. When you come to the book of Esther, do you laugh? Do you find amusement in God's dealings with a man named Haman? You would think that we'd be thinking of God's man, Mordecai. But we've got Haman there in the book of Esther as well. And we've got Ahasuerus, and we've got his wife Vashti first, and then his wife Esther. When you read Esther chapters 5 through 7, and Haman is invited to the first banquet, can you feel his excitement? He is invited to a private luncheon with Ahasuerus and Esther. Who could, who's above him in the whole kingdom? He's being blessed abundantly. The promotions are coming left and right. He's at dinner with the king and the queen. And he goes home, and his counselors and chamberlains and his wife, Zeresh, she's such a sweetheart, she says to him, there's nothing left but the whole kingdom. Just hold on. Zeresh is a good woman. Because the Lord uses her. Do you enjoy that? Because you know what's coming at the next luncheon. You know, why did it take two luncheons? I'm going to tell, why did it take two luncheons? Because we wouldn't have all of Esther chapters five through seven without two. And it wouldn't get nearly as good if it weren't for two. You say, well, I thought that you've preached before that Esther might have been a little nervous the first time around. And so she had to call for, okay. 
God's able to use your nervousness. Don't you worry about your nervousness. When you're nervous about something that you know you need to do, just go ahead and do it nervous. The Lord can bless it. I don't care what means you want to talk about that second luncheon. We needed two luncheons to get all the laughs that Esther has for us. He comes home. He's glowing. He's walking seven feet tall, two feet off the ground, because he just had lunch with the king and the queen. That's the first banquet. What does Zeresh tell him to do? There's only one bad thing in his life. There's only one thing bothering him in his whole life. Everything's wonderful now. King and queen both love him. They're inviting him to lunch and no one else. What's the one thing bothering him? Mordecai. What does Zeresh suggest? Why don't you get rid of the one thing bothering you? Your life can be perfect, so build a gallows in the backyard to hang him. So that's Esther chapter 5. Well, that night, Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. Who caused that and why? Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. If you couldn't sleep, might you take some herbs? He didn't take herbs. He went and read. And he didn't go read the most exciting stuff. He went and read the Chronicles of the Kingdom of Persia. If you've ever seen the congressional record of these United States, you would not want to take more than two minutes reading them. They are a volume every single day of the goings-on of a bureaucratic government, and they're, they're mind-blowing in the boredom of what you have to read through. But anyway, he's reading the Chronicles. And why would he happen to land on an event that took place years ago when Mordecai saved him from an assassination attempt. How did all these things happen? Listen, the word God isn't even in the book of Esther. God is not talked about directly in Esther, but His hand is everywhere in the book of Esther. It's everywhere in every chapter, in every event. And so we have Ahasuerus reading about Mordecai during the night. And knowing that there's another luncheon that day, Haman arrives early at the palace. And he comes in early, and there's Ahasuerus already up. And Ahasuerus says, and who arranged all this? Could it get me better than this? You want to talk about a comedy? Comedy Central? This is one of the Comedy Centrals of the Bible. The book of Esther, chapter 6. Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. Haman walks in and Ahasuerus says to him, Haman, oh, I needed somebody. Thank you for coming in. What should the king do to the man the king delights in? Haman's head swells bigger than the vestibule of the king's chamber that he's in. His head is so swollen as he thinks this must be about me because I had a luncheon with the king and queen yesterday. I have one today. Wow, good things are just happening Like Zeresh told me, what should the king do to the man whom the king wants to honor? And so Haman gave quite a laundry list of what he thought should happen to the man that the king wanted to honor. Assuming that it was himself, he made it as uplifting and as kingly-like as he possibly could. And he put other men down that would lead that horse and would just be the servants to him on the horse. And he said, thus shall the man be honored that the king delights in. And Ahasuerus said, excellent, it's Mordecai, now go do exactly what you said. How could it get any better than that? If you can read that without laughing, you have a serious spiritual problem. 
This is our God taking care of our church when our church was in captivity and our church had legislation already passed by a government whose laws could not be altered to exterminate them. So how did Haman spend that morning before he got to go to lunch with the queen? Honoring Mordecai. Mortified out of... Only the Lord could have arranged that. And the Lord did arrange it. And why did the Lord arrange it? Because he'll laugh and have them in derision. And he has us in derision. We laugh and we laugh and we laugh when we read those chapters of Esther. So now he goes home and gets new advice from his wife. Haman, it's over. It's curtains. I'll bet Mordecai is a Jew. I'll bet your luncheon is going to be your destruction. It's over. What a woman. What a fickle woman. Can you believe that? She was telling him the previous day to make the gallows. Now she's telling him it's over. It's curtains. God's out to destroy you. Why is she speaking like that when she's a Persian enemy of the the God of Israel and the people of Israel? Because God's using her as part of the comedy. So he goes to lunch. And Esther finally works her courage up and tells Ahasuerus that she and all her people have been put to death, are going to be put to death, they're going to be exterminated, they're going to be annihilated. And Ahasuerus says, who in the world's done this? She goes, Haman. Oh, it's such a sweet luncheon. They were drinking from the best vessels. They had the best food that the entire earth could offer from India to Ethiopia. And Haman just learns why these luncheons were taking place. Ahasuerus is so upset he can't stand it, so he gets up and leaves the room to step out into the garden to get a breath of fresh air. He's so angry. Haman begs for his life. Now you got to understand something. Persians ate reclining on sofas called beds. They're on their elbows, laid out horizontal when they ate. And Haman is over begging for his life on her sofa. (laughs) Oh, Lord, we couldn't have dreamed this up. And our mouths are full of laughter. Ahasuerus steps back in from the garden and finds Haman on his wife's sofa bed and says, will you force my wife as well? Oh. And so the guys that stand behind the curtains in such rooms just stepped out and put a bag over his head. And then he found out that he had gallows in his backyard prepared for Mordecai. And guess where he dangled that day? What a tale. Brethren, this is the Lord our God. What are you afraid of? Daniel read this morning that we shall not be afraid even if the earth were removed. Now that's, you're worried about legislation in our government? Come on. You're worried about what's going to happen nine days from now in some new elected officials? Come on. Legislation was passed to annihilate them, and the law couldn't be changed. And it couldn't be changed. But a new law could be made. Do you like that part of the book of Esther? They just passed a new law that the Jews, who were going to be killed by their enemies, had the right on a certain day to go and kill all their enemies so that by the time they got to the date of that law being fulfilled, there wouldn't be anyone to kill them. Who's able to pull all those strings? The great puppeteer of heaven, the almighty God, and I love being his puppet. But he's not, we're not just puppets. We're his children. And it was for the sake of his children that he did that. 
What a book. What a book. Should we laugh about Nebuchadnezzar being put out to pasture for seven years? When you go and read about his hairs being grown out like birds' feathers and his nails being grown out like birds' claws and him being out there for seven years, seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is out to pasture. We use that expression, putting someone out to pasture. But the Lord put someone out to pasture and he ate grass like an ox. And yet, at the end of those days, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And yet, there was a brass band around that stump. The tree was cut down, meaning Nebuchadnezzar. He was cut down from being king. But there was a brass band around that stump in the ground because God said, Daniel said, God is going to preserve his majesty and his kingdom. Now how, when you disappear for seven years and go out to pasture and you're on your hands and knees eating grass like an ox, does your kingdom stay in your name? Nebuchadnezzar got his kingdom back and the Bible says honor and glory were added to him. That's how much God is able to take care of somebody who humbles themselves and fears his holy name. You know, so many of these humorous events in the Bible that we're looking at are judgments. And so when we think about God's humor is in judgment many times, we want to realize, we want to tremble with joy before Him. We want to rejoice with trembling that if you want to stand up and ignore the preaching of God's Word, if you want to ignore the Bible, if you want to ignore the God of heaven and the standard He has set for your life, He is easily able to humiliate you by His unique, creative judgments in your life. Because some of these we've read about are against Israel, and that is the church itself. That was chastening that God brought about. And so there's a, there's occasion for us to fear Him. And yet, it is judgment poured out upon the enemies of the church on other occasions, and in that we're supposed to delight. Because look at what God does to His enemies, and look at what God does to our enemies. Those people that mess with us, look what happens to them. Nebuchadnezzar raised the, R-A-Z-E-D, the temple in Jerusalem, and raised the city, R-A-Z-E-D, the city of Jerusalem, but look what God did to him. And so we find great comfort in it. When David went to meet Goliath, what did Goliath think of David? What have you sent out to me? Just a dog? So when Goliath, from his nine feet and nine inches of height, looked down from his beady Philistine eyes and saw David and measured him as a man, he thought of him as a dog because he was just a ruddy youth. What was God in heaven doing? <laughs> you haven't met my boy yet. That's what he, he was. Absolutely. My boy took on a lion, which you haven't yet, big boy. He took on a bear. And he's going to take you down with the first stone. What joy. David ran to meet him. What gave David that confidence in the Lord? He had the right balance with the Lord that he could do something. Is there not a cause? It's the God of heaven we're defending. We want to always be glorifying him and defending him. And David ran to meet Goliath and took a smooth stone out of his shepherd's script and put it in his sling and slung it. And that billiard-sized ball landed right there between Goliath's eyes and his forehead and he fell down to the earth. David ran up there and pulled out his giant sword. His armor bearer had long fled the scene. We, we would have to speculate. And he cut his head off and came back into the camp, a ruddy youth, a big ugly head in his left hand and a giant sword in his right. What a day. We laugh, we rejoice, we glory. Children, David killed Goliath just like that. 
And Goliath thought he was just a little runt. Don't you ever be afraid of anyone. You're going to have Goliaths in your life. But don't worry about it. God's your friend. And God's going to do something funny. Brother Zach wanted to remind me at break time, look at the church of Jesus Christ. It says to look among ourselves and see your calling. How that God hath not called very many wise. He hath not called very many mighty. He hath not called very many noble or very many rich. Why? That he might confound the rich, the wise, and the mighty, and the noble by making his children those people that were nothings in the world to bring to nothing those people that think they're something. Are you amused by that or not? You should be amused by that. Lord, thank you for reaching all the way down to me. Praise His name. The whole Bible's full of it. Because God is going to get, God is going to laugh and He's going to have the last laugh against those that rebelled against Him. And we ought to tremble in a certain respect that we never rebel against the Lord God. What does He want you doing in your marriage? What does He want you doing in your finances? What does He want you doing on the job? What does He want you doing in your personal devotions that you're not doing? Don't play around with the God of heaven. Because if He starts playing around with you, if you think that a cat can play with a mouse, by batting it between its hands and letting that, the cat can let the mouse think that the mouse is getting away. Hey, you, I've watched and studied this at great length when I was a child and my father to love my do- my sister had cats in the house all the time. I'm in all of that very respectful. Siamese cats, you watch them with a mouse, they'll let that mouse think that it's getting away and then pounce on it just before it can get to its safe place of hiding and they can beat it back and forth between its paws so quickly they can bite it just hard enough to hurt a little bit but keep it alive. Maybe slow it down a tad so they don't lose it. All of that was to say this. You play with him. If he ever starts to play with you, that is what you are in the hands of the living God except infinitely multiplied words. So we want, we always want to keep this balance of looking at the humor of God's judgments. We don't want to be in there because God can do that with quail to his own people. If you're not content with what God's given you and you're not going to be happy until God gives you something different, he may give you something different and ruin you. Do you know what the Bible says in Psalm 106 about the quail incident? It says God gave them their heart's request, but sent leanness into their soul. That is a horrible judgment. If God really loved me, He'd give me this, even though you've already got this. And so He may give you some of this, but you're never going to enjoy it because He's going to send leanness into your soul and He's going to use that for your ruin. While those people were eating their quail, while they were chewing off their quail, in their teeth, God struck a number of them dead. It was God's chastening. We want to have the proper balance of all of this. When you read the little prophet of Jonah, do you ever get a smile on your face? Does God call some pretty strange men to be his prophets? Does God arrange some pretty strange punishments for his prophets when they don't want to do his will? Who believed and feared God more on the deck of that ship? The pagan mariners or Jonah? Jonah didn't repent. Jonah just said, throw me over. Come on, why don't you repent? Because it wasn't in him yet. And why wouldn't he go to Nineveh to preach? Because he didn't want anybody to be converted. He wanted the city to burn up. And even though he preached 40 days, God's going to burn this city up, he still went and built himself a little box seat 
on the side of a hill overlooking the city so he could watch it and roast marshmallows over it. Where did that, what's that in the Bible for? And then God causes that gourd to grow up and the gourd protects him from the heat of the sun. And oh, he's, what a wonderful thing, this gourd. This gourd, I love this gourd. This is a neat gourd. This is so cool that this gourd's grown up right now when I need it to give me some shade. Then God kills the gourd. Go ahead and kill me. It's not worth living because I don't have my gourd anymore. And that's all in the Bible. That's all a prophet. And we're in his office. The Lord takes us in the office of a prophet of God. And that's what we hear. And it's horrible. But he still saves the city of Nineveh in spite of the man. And then he uses a little object lesson. How in the world are you worried about a gourd and you don't care about 120,000 children in that city that don't know the difference between their left hand and their right hand? You are seriously twisted in your priority. And the book ends. Boom. It ends. Is there humor in Solomon's writings? Look at Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. You know, if you wanted to fully exhaust this subject, you'd have to deal with all the figures of speech. We'll only deal with the... The Bible's full of it. The Bible makes a play on words here and there. The Bible uses irony. The Bible uses hyperbole, hilarious hyperbole. The, the Bible uses sarcasm. Oh, what sarcasm? which sarcasm do you want to use? But right now, let's, we're in the book of Proverbs. Look at Solomon the wise man. Solomon the wise man. Proverbs 11 and verse 22. As a jewel of gold and a swine's snout, so was a fair woman which, was without, which is without discretion. I mean, you look at that verse and you try to visualize it, and you think about this 2,000-pound hairy, stinking sow, and it's got a nose ring. And the Lord is saying, that is a beautiful woman who doesn't know how to conduct herself in public. And you're saying, yes, but the 2,000-pound hairy, stinking pig far outsizes in everything the little piece of gold. That's a fair woman. And what do we say about a woman when she's not very fair and she doesn't know how to conduct herself in public? She ain't even got the nose ring. Because the nose ring is a woman's beauty. But when a woman doesn't know how to behave herself, who cares what she looks like? Because it's just like a piece of gold in a pig's nose. That's in the Bible. Who wrote that? Solomon. Who inspired him to write it? The God of heaven. Does it get the point across? You know, a proverb is a short, pithy statement of wisdom observed in life or given by a teacher. And here they are. There's a whole string of them. There's a lion in the streets. Where is that one? Let's find it. Is that 2614? It may be and it may not be. No, that's another one about... Oh, verse 13 will do it. There's two of these in the book of Proverbs. 26.13 The slothful man saith, There is a lion in the way. A lion is in the streets. Now not all slothful men don't... It's not true that all slothful men avoid going to work because they think that there's an actual lion outside their front door. This is Solomon making fun of them in a proverb that they'll make up any excuse whatsoever to avoid going to work and doing a difficult task. I'll be slain in the streets, as it is in the other fraternal twin of this one. How about verse 14? As the door turneth upon his hinges, so doth the slothful upon his bed. 
and you think about a door, a block of wood hanging on hinges, and how it can go back and forth. It never, it never moves. It's always stationary in its place, but it's always swinging back and forth. Then you think about the, then you think about yourself. <laughs> back and forth, you go in your bed, and you're amused. You say, Lord, you know us so well, and you know slothful men so well, and you know what those that sleep in are doing because they don't have sound sleep anymore. They, they have intermittent sleep, and it's in, intermittent based on finding a new position that's comfortable because actually you're starting to get bed sores from being in bed too long. That's why you can't get comfortable, so you're back and forth. It's in the Word of God. I love the whole Bible. I want to share this book. I want to share the whole book. I want to use this book to get into the homes of many by our daily proverb commentary that we send out so that we can show them the rest of the book about the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever Solomon said in his wisdom, Jesus Christ outdid in his wisdom because he is the better son of Solomon. He is the glorious son of Solomon. How about 23? Proverbs chapter 23. How does God and Solomon describe being drunk? How cool do they think it is to be drunk? You know, you've got to go to college, usually an upper-end school, not a technical college. They don't really have fraternities, not like other schools. And you've got to get into a fraternity where you can go have drinking contests to see who can get the drunkest without dying. And once in a while they die. When I read about them dying in the paper, I laugh my sides out, I slap myself, I punch the air, and I shout with joy. Amen. For drinking enough to kill yourself, it takes a lot. Here's what God has to say. Proverbs chapter 23, he's talking about tarrying long at the wine in verse 20, verse 30. Verse 30. Look at verse 29, the rhetorical questions. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? Look at the mockery against drinking too much, but it gets better. Verse 34. Yea, this is what it's like to get drunk. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Now I have been on a ship not at sea, but it was as, it was as bigger, bigger than the seas that these are talking about on Lake Huron. And we did not go to the top of the mast. We wanted to find that sweet spot between the top of the mast and the bottom of the keel. That's where there was going to be the least amount of movement. And we just held ourselves there because we didn't want to call for Ralph any more times over the side of that ship. I had called for Ralph, and Ralph had never shown up, and there was nothing left for me to give Ralph. Ralph! Ralph! There was no Ralph. This description is, the man is not at the sweet spot. The man has gone... Now, you know what the sweet spot is? You know what a, you know what a 40, 50, 60-foot mast and a 39-foot racing yacht looks like? Now, when the ship at the bottom moves just a little tiny bit, do you know how much it moves at the top of the mast? Oh, it's ugly. And so the Lord says, verse 34, Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Your stomach does not find equilibrium 
when you're on that ship at sea, you can lie down, stand up, or stand on your head. You can put yourself in a straitjacket because it doesn't matter. Your stomach is still moving. Right, Dave? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. I didn't have the flu, but I was stricken. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. I'm all, I'm all hurting. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. That is a drunkard. And that is the Bible describing a drunkard. When I wake up, I'll go do it again. Though I am battered, abused, with all the problems of verse 29, the woe, the sorrow, this is the Word of God. This is the book of Proverbs. This is Solomon trying to address young men who think that it's cool to get drunk. And he mocks them and he tears into them as what folly it is. And I love the Word of God. It's humorous. It's comical. It's funny to think about a guy trying to sleep on top of a mast of a ship at sea. That's the most exaggerated movement that you could possibly get yourself into at sea. 25 24. 25-24, it is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. You've built this huge mansion. You've worked hard all your life. You've married this woman. And oh, she was so sweet when you were dating her. But now she's married. And she's an odious woman. And there's four things the earth cannot bear. And one of those four, according to the 30th chapter, verse 23, is an odious woman when she is married. And now the man finds out what he actually got himself into. And though he's built himself a wide house, he's on the corner of the housetop trying to find some refuge from that loud, brawling, contentious, irritating, provoking, nagging, questioning, suggesting wife. And if he takes her in public, he can't hide her. Because Solomon said, it's like the ointment of your right hand. You can't put cologne on and get into public without people being able to smell it. And you can't take her out anywhere without them realizing you are cursed. It's awesome. And people think this is a dry book. This is the living God. It's not dry or dead. This book lives still today, 3,000 years after Solomon penned those verses. We have all met that woman and known her husband needed a flat rooftop so that he could go up there and get some relief. Because we know the ones that have hobbies, that stay away from their wives so much, because they'd rather be out there. They would rather be in the lawn pulling out dandelions by hand on their hands and knees. I have witnessed that my wife and I know exactly who I'm talking about to get away from that incessant chatter of a talkative woman. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Since this was mentioned at the men's meeting on Wednesday night, it, it deserved a turn. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 4. For to him that is joined to all the living, no, it was last Sunday, there is hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Isn't that funny? You know, as long as you're alive, there's hope. As long as you've got a little bit of hope, it's better than when there's none. And a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, that isn't very flattering. I know it isn't. But listen, if you're the dog... If you're the dog and you're alive, you're better than a dead lion. Be thankful for that little bit of hope you have. Because for him that is joined to the living, there is still hope. 
Because the Lord's able to do anything. But once you're dead, there is no more hope, which is much of the book of Ecclesiastes. When we go to chapter 12 and we look at the decay of the human body, aren't we amused as we work down through that description of the evil days coming? When the keepers of the house shall tremble, have ever watched an old man even sign his name? That should be the... When a man signs his name, that should be the motion of his hand and wrist and fingers that he's most familiar with because he's written it the most times. And yet when he's doing it, his hand is shaking because the keepers of the house shall tremble and the strong men shall bow themselves. The legs get bowed over and we go down through this. The grinders cease because they are few. The teeth are falling out and those that look out of the windows be darkened. Your eyes can't see as clearly anymore. And we just go down through this and we rejoice at the funny, amusing, metaphorical way that Solomon described the decay of the human body. This is the Bible. This is God that inspired the Bible and preserved these pages to us that we would have a humorous description of the end of life. And though it's not very humorous because it's called the evil days, the sun's going to no longer shine. The rain's just going to keep coming because there's not going to be a bright day again like there had been. And it goes on down through here and says, Many neat things about the sound of the grinding is low. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird. Anything wakes them up in the morning. The daughters of music shall be brought low. You can't hear music clearly anymore. You're going to be afraid of that which is high. And we all know that. We all smile as we read this and realize, You know, I used to love to climb trees and get in the very top. And with my brother with me, that tree would be 30, 40 feet. Watching the top of that tree just go like this and my poor mother down there screaming for the boys to get out of that tree. But I'll tell you one thing, you couldn't get me in that tree now. The only time I'd stand in that tree again is if you cut it down and let me stand in it lying on the ground. What a change comes over people. You know, who wants to work on a tall ladder these days? And I know that about you too. Wonderful, amusing, funny. Lord, you're our friend. You know what's going to happen to us. But you know, the Lord knows this isn't the end. The Lord knows He's got a new body for us. And so He can write about it like this. We're going to get all our grinders back. They're going to be better grinders. They're going to be glorified grinders. You're going to get your eyesight back. Nobody wears glasses in heaven. And nobody has an insulin pump in heaven. Everything. And so we can rejoice at a passage like this even and find some humor in it as the wise man describes the decay of the human body. Look at Genesis chapter 3. We can't get out of Genesis chapter 3 before you run into the first sarcasm of the Bible. You know, this takes a whole study called Figures of Speech, which we've done, which is a document on our website. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. Hello. To know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. Man didn't become like God. God doesn't know good and evil in any sense that man now knew good and evil. This was the lie of the devil given to the man to get him to eat the fruit. God knows that this is secret fruit, Eve. If you eat this fruit, you're going to become like God, knowing good and evil. And so when God takes it up, He mocks them sarcastically by saying, now that man's like us. No, he isn't. Now man was a sinner, far more different from God than he had been five minutes earlier. So much of this in the Bible. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. 
This is a whole other study, but we'll just look at a couple and see that even in the way the Bible's written, the use of figures of speech, there is no more... I don't know how you would find a piece of literature with more figures of speech than the Bible. That makes it beautiful. That makes it powerful. That makes it creative. And that means you better study it carefully. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 28. This is hyperbole. Whither shall we go up? This is the murmuring of Israel that they did back in the book of Numbers. Our brethren have discouraged our heart, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. Can you visualize a city that's walled up to heaven? Would it look like a long tube? Because if it's walled up to heaven, there's no city with that dimension and width. And if it's surrounded by a city, well, it's just ridiculous. It's hyperbole. That means an exaggeration that you understand when you read it and you just get a little amused by it. And it's a powerful figure of speech showing that these people were complaining we could never take the city of Canaan because the walls of their cities are so high. 1 Kings chapter 18. If I say 1 Kings 18, does, does everyone know where we're going? Does anyone know where we're going? Who's going to be using some sarcasm in this passage? Elijah. Oh, Elijah's got all the prophets of Baal there. And is he preaching about the attributes of Jehovah? No. He's asking about the attributes of Baal. There's a time and a place for everything. There's a time to weep, and there's a time to laugh, and we want to know both. And the Lord causes both. And the Lord is merciful to us with both. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself said, Blessed are they that weep now, for they shall laugh. Luke 6.21 But that's not where we are right now. We're at 1 Kings 18. And Elijah's got all the prophets of Baal. And he says in verse 22, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Look at the odds we have here for this religious service to show Israel who the real God is. And so you know all about the altar that he had made, and the wood, and the sacrifice. And then he said, I want barrels of water to put on that altar. And then he said, do it again. And then he said, do it again. Four barrels, four barrels, four barrels. Now this is at the end of a serious three and a half year drought. This is precious water. It ran down. It filled a moat around the altar. And then he prayed. But before he prayed and called fire down from heaven, he had a few things to say to the prophets of Baal. And it came to pass. He gave them all day long. He only needed a few minutes with the Lord because the Lord was his friend. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. He is a God. I'll give you that. He's a God. He's just got distracted right now. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancelets till the blood gushed out upon them. Then Elijah came near. Look at that sarcasm. They're ridiculing false religion. And people accuse us 
for doing something that isn't proper pulpit manner. When we do it, we want to do it because the Bible does it. And God's prophets have done it, including the Lord Jesus Christ making fun of the Jewish leaders of His day about sounding their trumpets and so forth, about their giving and calling them all sorts of names, especially in Matthew chapter 23. We want to understand and accept the Bible for what it says. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. You know, there's, a, there's an element of humor to the fact that when we die, it's just falling asleep in Jesus. Because we do die. Our bodies do die, but it's only called falling asleep. Matthew 9.24, Jesus has come to the home of the nobleman with the, with the uh, daughter who's died. Verse 24, He said unto them, These are all the minstrels and people making a noise because they're mourning the death of the daughter. Jesus said, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But who laughed last and who laughed best in this matter? The maid sleeps. Give place. She's not dead, but sleepeth. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can say that. The Lord Jesus Christ can mock the grave. The Lord Jesus Christ can mock death in 1 Corinthians 15. And we ought to be able to do the same if our hearts and our minds are in the right place. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 19. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Were there some rich men in the kingdom of God? Yes. Joseph of Arimathea. Philemon. Gaius. Men of means. But look at how Jesus described it. It's kind of amusing, isn't it? Have you ever seen a camel? When you went to the zoo, did you see the camel's pretty big? Have you ever looked at a needle and tried to get a thread into the eye of a needle? Some of you guys taking a look at your hands, you'd have trouble threading, a, putting a thread into the eye of a needle. I don't mean anything by that except working hands, which I don't have, would have, find it more difficult to get a thread into the eye of a needle. But how about a camel? That's what the Lord used. Hyperbole. A wonderful figure of speech. And there's places in the Bible where he uses other figures of speech. Very similar. When Jesus healed a man from blindness, how did he do it? He did it two ways. One time he spit in his eyes. Now that's kind of funny. Did the, did the saliva of the Lord Jesus Christ help cure the man of blindness? Not at all. Another time, he spit down in the dirt and he went down there and worked it up into some mud. Then he stuffed that in the man's eyes in John chapter 9. Did the saliva of Jesus in the dirt stuffed in a man's eyes help cure his eyes? Not at all. It was to make a point. It's all by my power. When he spit in the man's eyes, he said to him, what do you see now? I see men like trees walking. Well, go wash your eyes out and you'll see better. And so he went and washed them out and he said, now I see men. What's that in the Bible for? Did the saliva help? Not at all. It was just a demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ and His Word. You know, we glory in funny things of Scripture, 
of history, of creation, but we know he can easily humiliate us and we never want him to do that. This study is humor that God approves of, not the humor that God rejects. You know, sinners make a mock of sin. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 9, Proverbs 14 and 9, it says this, Fools make a mock at sin, but among the righteous there is favor. We are not mocking sin, except the folly of sin. When a drunkard gets drunk, which is a horrible thing, and it's a sin against God by abusing a creation that he made, we're mocking the consequences of that man and his willingness. As soon as he can recover, he goes and does it again. We don't make a mock at sin. We make a mock at sinners. We make a mock at their foolishness. We make a mock at their false religion. But we don't make a mock at sin. We don't tell jokes about sin. We don't tell jokes about our leaders. We don't tell jokes about heaven. We don't tell jokes about the Bible. We don't tell jokes about St. Peter and St. Paul being in a rowboat with a Methodist preacher and all the junk that they make up. We don't do any of that. And we're not going to do any of that. That's humor that God doesn't approve of. We want the humor He does approve of. There is a time and a season for everything. There is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. There is the house of feasting and there is the house of mourning. And there is profit in the house of mourning and there is profit in the house of feasting. But it's not the feasting house of the world. It's the feasting house of saints when they get together to celebrate God's goodness. We never laugh at God, only with Him. At those things He justifies as funny with the Scriptures. We want to know God. He enjoys a laugh now and then at His creations, His judgments, and His blessings. God made me to laugh. Sarah would say, we want to know God and walk with Him. And humor is a lightning factor between God and us. It lightens the relationship and makes it more friendly and more personal than some of the attributes that are inherent in Him. And we want the full balance of both. He is the Almighty God, the Lord Jehovah, but He is our Father, and He should be our friend. And we should walk and talk with Him every day, and we should rejoice in those things that He rejoices in. Look at Psalm 52. Psalm 52, where David rejoiced in laughter of God destroying God's enemy and His enemy. And this is about Doeg the Edomite, who killed all the priests because they gave David a little bit of assistance. This whole psalm is about the razor tongue of the lying Doeg the Edomite. In verse 2, you can see that. And his lying in verse 3. And his devouring words in verse 4. But in verse 5, David writes about Doeg. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. This is the sweet psalmist of Israel describing the laughter of the saints of God at the destruction of one of God's enemies. God's prophets have derisively mocked heresy and punished disrespect in their respective ministries. And this is a whole subject. It's entitled a sermon preached many years ago called Rude Preachers. What did the rude preacher Moses do when he came down with the two tables of stone and found his church worshiping two golden calves? He made golden Kool-Aid and made the nation drink it. 
That's pretty funny. You want to worship these two golden calves? I'll make you drink them. And he did. We've already looked at Elijah with the prophets of Baal. We've already seen Micaiah with the prophets of Baal before Ahab and Jehoshaphat. How about 2 Kings chapter 1 when Elisha comes on the scene and takes over from Elijah? These are bold men. They're funny. Elijah says, what would you like as a favor before I leave? Well, my mother's a widow now. Could you help? No. I want twice your spirit. That's kind of funny. Elijah is known as one of the most spirited prophets of God in the annals of the Bible history. John the Baptist was made like John, like Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And yet Elisha said, I want twice the spirit of Elijah. And he got it. Some children decided that they would make fun of Elisha about go up thou bald head. Go up thou bald head. And a couple she-bears came out and tear them. That's kind of funny too. Making fun of a prophet of God and that happens to them. You know, Korah found that the earth could open up its mouth and swallow them alive. That was funny. They thought they were so high and mighty and wanted to pick on Moses and Aaron. And we can just go through the Bible and we can see. How about sober men? Job would never say anything sarcastic, would he? How about Job chapter 12? Job chapter 12. Job answered and said, verse 2, No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. He is just mocking these three friends of his that wisdom's going to disappear from the earth when these three guys die. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Look at Job chapter 30. There's one more i got to get out from Job. Job chapter 30. He's going, he's chapter 29. He was talking about what kind of a life he's lived and how he was respected among men, and he was. Verse 1 of Job 30. But now they that are younger than I have me in derision. These three friends of his, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock. Now that's getting low. Youth, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. When I was in my prime, your dads, I wouldn't have let bark with my dogs. Yeah, these are the prophets of God. These are the men of God. How about their appearance? Was there anything funny about Elijah? How could they tell very quickly if it was Elijah or not from a distance? They would just send somebody and say, come back and tell me what he's wearing. And if he came back and it was all rough and just a leather girdle and some camel hair and just wild looking. Oh, it's Elijah. Where was his fine suit? Where was his sweet pulpit manner? Where was his suave and debonair approach to things? What kind of bedside manner did Elijah have? Well, he would probably crawl on top of you, and then you'd sneeze a few times and get up. Because that's what he did when he went to the hospital. Look at John the Baptist out in the wilderness. What did he eat? I saw the pa- I saw I saw the prophet at Outback. No, you never saw the prophet at Outback. You saw him out back, and he was eating locusts and wild honey, and a leather girdle with camel's hair, and it wasn't made by Jones of New York. 
It was rough and it was ugly. But these were the prophets of God and they should amuse us as the kind of men that God brings the gospel to his people. We should laugh with Abraham and Sarah. We should laugh with Miriam and the Song of Moses. We should laugh with Deborah. These aren't funeral dirges in the Bible. These are celebratory dances. When you go out of this place today, there is a beautiful day out there. The Lord has given us so many beautiful things to delight in and to rejoice in. He's given us children. He's given us health. He's given us animals in the zoo. He's given us clouds in the sky and birds in the air. He's given us the Word of God, the history here of His creation. We have His providence. We have His judgments. We have His blessings on His people that are hard to imagine that He's able to pull off some of the things that He did pull off. And we want to rejoice and laugh with them all. Do you know that it is a prescription? It's a prescription of the Bible for you to have a merry heart. A merry heart in Proverbs chapter 15 can give you a continual feast. Life can be a continual feast if you are happy in the Lord and rejoicing in all the things that He has done for you and for His church and through His Son, Jesus Christ. It can be health to your body. The Bible says that. A cheerful heart doeth good like a medicine. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 22. People that don't know how to laugh, people that don't know how to be happy, people that have chosen to be miserable every day of their lives, they have more health problems than other people. The world is picking up on that now, but they're always thousands of years behind. Solomon put that in the book of Proverbs for us. You know, it's, it's Solomon that wrote in Ecclesiastes that we're to enjoy our bread, eat our bread and enjoy our wine with a glad heart. And we should be glad. The Lord's given us so many things to be glad about. If in Psalm 126, which I started out with several hours ago, it filled their mouth with laughter, we have far more than they had. We... If you had to face the daunting task of the pile of rubble in Jerusalem, you would have gone forth bearing precious seed, weeping. None of you are going home to anything like that. You are going home to a, to a, a house already built, a well already dug, furniture already there, secure, a job, income, cash flow, health. We are so blessed. We should be more thankful. We should be happier. We should be enjoying God and His mercy toward us than any others that have come before us. We have more to laugh and be glad about because of our eternal redemption, the hope of eternal life, and all the blessings He's given us here in America. Now let me close with that one verse that I just quoted a moment ago. It's Luke chapter 6 and verse 21. Luke 6, 21. It's one of the Beatitudes. It's not in Matthew, but it's in Luke. Luke chapter 6 and verse 21. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. You know, this, we're supposed to understand these with a spiritual sense. It's, it's not being hungry physically because you haven't had any food to eat. It's hungering and thirsting after righteousness and after knowing God you're going to be filled. And there's a weeping that comes when you realize your sinfulness and you realize how you've displeased God. And yet there's a time to put away that weeping and a time to laugh because there is full and complete redemption in the Lord. So true is this that in Nehemiah chapter 8, when the people began to weep, what was the order of the Tershatha? Stop your weeping. Today is holy to the Lord. And if you keep weeping, you're going to ruin it. Let us rejoice and send portions and make mirth. God has forgiven us. God has given us His Word. God has given us His Son. God has promised eternal life to us. 
And He has given us so many things to amuse us and make our lives light. He is our friend. I hope you will walk with Him, talk with Him, laugh with Him, and rejoice with Him in His Word, in His creation, in His providence, in your life. He is a glorious God in every respect. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word to your delight in Him, that we will delight in Him as did our brother David. In Jesus' name, Amen.